0: Another conversation in two halves for you this week. The first half is my conversation with Melbourne poet Peter Bukowski. I'm really pleased to be able to put this out after last week's conversation with Elijah Blumov. Peter's been writing poetry for 40 years and he operates from maybe not an opposite position to Elijah, but a very different one. Peter is entirely self-educated as a poet and as he shares in this interview, he dropped out of high school, served his own apprenticeship in poetry, and he's gone on to write at least 13 books. I'm always a little bit doubtful quoting the number when it comes to poets' publication records because they've always got a secret book somewhere that nobody knows about. <laughs> the count is always wrong, but it's somewhere in the order of 13 books. And so we talk about not only that question of self-education, but what it takes to sustain a career in poetry over a lifetime. We talk about Peter's approach, which very much prioritises clarity. And we unpack, I think, some of the problems with difficulty that I suspect at least some listeners will really relate to. Towards the end of the conversation, we also talk a little bit about the work of sustaining that kind of long career including some notes on how to get in with Ozco, basically Uh, so hopefully you'll find that useful and interesting in the second half I'm gonna jump back in with a bunch of thoughts on education in poetry a couple of things have happened recently that really had this playing on my mind and I have a question for you all that I really would love your help with so until then here's Peter So you told me when we spoke before that you're completely self educated in poetry. Yeah. Why not study poetry formally? What's to be gained through educating yourself and not at some point going to an institution, enrolling, sitting in classes, you know, writing essays, all that kind of stuff? What well, do you gain by not doing that?
1: What's self- When I talk about self-education, it's by doing all sorts of reading, not just reading other poets, but reading um, maybe the work of a Korean novelist or a historical novel set in France in 1918, or then reading several biographies of a creative person, someone I don't know anything about until I read the biographies. So it's a sort of gleaning process. Recently, I read a novel by the British author Elizabeth Taylor and the mother in the novel keeps commanding that her daughter be a sensible girl. And I thought of the phrase sensible girl And I ended up writing a poem with a fictitious character, a daughter and a a mother. And the daughter is far from being a sensible girl. She wants to be an explorer. So I got the inspiration of that poem from reading the two words sensible girl in a novel. So... I like to have a free-ranging self-education, not a prescribed education. And I'm very interested in contemporary writers. I don't re- really read anyone uh, born before the year 1900.
0: You use the word gleaning, and that mm. reminded me of this film by the filmmaker Agnes Varda, The Gleaners and I. Have you seen it?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. amazing movie. Yes, there's yeah. also a painting in the NGV called the Gleaners.
0: Right, well there's a number of paintings of gleaning Yes. the yeah. process which is to sort of go mm. into a field that's been ploughed or, mm. or dealt with by farm equipment and you just pick up what's left. Yeah,
1: yeah. gleaning is about picking up the overlooked. Mm. Yeah, just go over maybe the same subject matter but try and look at it in a new way. But the, the self-education is, is, a, I call it nourishment. So as we might, as children, res, reject the Brussels sprouts on the plate, as a child, I might reject the poetry of um, Anne, Anne Sexton or, you know, Robert Frost. It's a personal taste thing. And if I went to a university, I'd sort of anticipate there'd be some of the people and their work that we studied that wouldn't be my cup of tea. And I would find that a waste of my time. So I like being sort of autodidactic. It's like being a detective amongst literature and a detective in libraries. The other day I picked up a book called The, The Secret Life of Cows and um it's 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 educating me so it's telling me that cows form family units and farmers with small herds claim they can tell when they taste the milk which cow the milk came from good lord
0: um you you were mentioning uh that that thing of sitting in the classroom and, you know, all of a sudden you're being told, Mm. this is canon, you have to read it, you have to get behind it. And I was reminded of something you said in an interview about difficulty and obscurity. You Mm. said, when I read a difficult or obscure poem, I get fatigued, I walk away from the poem or I get angry at the poem. Yeah. Um, What's a recent experience of that for you? Because it sounds like you're pretty, you remain pretty open. Yeah. Yeah. You're not not ruling anything out, but you also understand what you like.
1: It's more I can't sort of decipher the poem and I don't see it as a lack in myself. I just feel that maybe the poet has built a Rubik's Cube out of words rather than I sometimes think I just want to write a poem that's like a a clean glass of water. You know, I know, I have friends, poet friends who really revere Ted Berrigan and I've tried reading Ted Berrigan. I find it's, it is too hard for me to personally decipher and I get fatigued by the effort.
0: Mm. You are one of those poets who, when people write about your work, they will use this phrase, which I, I wonder how it lands, which is um, deceptively simple. Right. And I feel like that's reviewer speak for plain spoken. Yeah. You know, which is, which there's nothing wrong with that at all. But it's funny how in a review, people will say, oh, it's deceptively simple. Like, don't worry that it's so simple. There is more here. <laughs> it's like, well, no, I mean, plain spoken is a good thing. But... Yeah, I want to hear more about this case for clarity, the Plain Glass of Water School of Poetry. Yeah,
1: well, I remember when I was serving my sort of self-imposed apprenticeship of writing poems in London. i try and write a poem every Monday. It was my day off from the day job. And I walked into a London bookstore in Fulham and there was a quote from the philosopher Schopenhauer, and it said, use ordinary words to say extraordinary things. And that is a quote that I still live by. And then since then, being a collective of quotes, I read a quote from the American poet laureate, Billy Collins. And he said, with clarity, There's nothing to hide behind. So I'm interested in honest writing, in frank writing, in candid writing, because if we write about difficult subject matter, say divorce, my parents underwent uh, elongated divorce. I wanted to write about that. I felt I needed to write about that, get it out of my system. And I've probably written about four divorce related poems And I feel it's important to write those poems because someone else who's gone through the experience as a child of divorced parents might read it and go, I'm not alone in that experience. And that to me is the solace of literature that someone has experienced this or that and I've felt exactly the same and they've articulated it for me. Mm -hmm.
0: And there are those writers which we talked a little bit about before we started in Mm. terms of showing the way to this. Mm. So we'll bring up another Bukowski, Charles Bukowski. No relation, obviously. No. A quote that you pointed me towards of his is "Writing is painting," which I really thought was quite great. I mean, I don't have Mm. the friendliest relationship with no. Bukowski, mm. but um yes yeah he is a writer and I, th- I know there are others for you it's not just him mm. who who sort of point the way to this the yes. domestic being yes. a totally legitimate subject mm.
1: yes and to write about your own city uh, he wrote about freeways and driving a car on a freeway and he wrote about the corner store And he wrote about his neighbourhood and his neighbours. And um, I've written a lot of Melbourne poems and a lot to do with park benches in the Fitzroy Gardens and then, you know, taking the mickey out of, um, you know, maybe a trendy street in Fitzroy and then writing about my earlier years in the then-Bohemian suburb of St Kilda. So I feel I l- learnt from Charles Bukowski that you can write about the local, the domestic, the urban. Because I think I've fought against the, the romanticism of the Australian outback and the bush and writing nature poems. Whereas I feel a homeless person in Collins Street in front of the 7 that in a way is nature as well. It's, it's reality. And I'm just fascinated by the multiplicity of events that can occur at one time in a city. Today, someone might be having the most wonderful day of their life and somewhere else in the city of Melbourne someone will be informed that they've got a terminal illness.
0: I'm thinking, as you're talking about the fact that you've had this long, long writing life, over 40 years now. Mm. And I imagine that when you started that bush and city divide, Mm. well, I don't even know if it would have been a divide. Maybe there was a sense that you had to write about the bush to be an Australian poet, quote unquote, I don't know. Tell me about that.
1: I was concentrating on the city. I feel I'm a city person. I love big cities, but as I get older, I've found the wisdom and health benefits of being in the wilderness. But the city fascinates me, the city of Melbourne, and I've seen seen it obviously change in my lifetime now being 68 years old and when i've given a talk at melbourne university i i've encouraged people in the in the creative writing class to be a detective in their own city go to a suburb of melbourne that you've never been to notice things observe things and what you observe will will enter into your poems i saw quite a dishevelled woman sitting in Pellegrini's one day and she ended up being a fictitious character in a poem I wrote about a woman who was in a relationship with a petty criminal. So I wouldn't have got that poem unless I had gone out into the streets of Melbourne and sat in Pellegrini's that morning and observed this sort of woman with unwashed hair with a T2 bag at her feet. It's that
0: gleaning thing again, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: The fact that you've been writing for such a long time, really, I, I definitely want to ask about that because (laughs) one of the, one of the the curses of having a podcast is you can see the most popular episode. You can see the statistics and one of the most popular episodes is the one about quitting quitting writing oh my goodness i know i thought you might react that way so obviously you've never considered that no where do you get the because you also talk about positivity yes where does that come from
1: it comes from having served my apprenticeship having realized the publication of nationally distributed books and having receiving very positive feedback from the general public and people receiving positive people that have come up to me and said oh you know I was hesitant to come to this poetry reading but I'm glad you came and and sometimes they breathe a sigh of relief and say I understood every word of your poems. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, because there's an the expectation that they'll be confused and...
1: Yeah, you know, and people have come alienated. up to me and said, oh, I, I, sh- I assumed you had to have a university education to be a poet and also to understand poems. <laughs> right,
0: yeah, that's depressing. Yes, I found
1: it sad. <laughs> My reaction was one of sadness
0: yeah because I mean that's so it's so exclusionary
1: yes yeah. and, and I often say at poetry readings because I know there might be budding novice writers in the audience I say you know I failed year 12 HSC you know I didn't finish high school and I taught myself how to write poems Jeff Dyer said he learns about something by writing about it. What he's thinking, what he's fearing, what he's confused about, what he's clear about. So it really is a self-education in terms of global knowledge, historical knowledge and also maybe personal knowledge.
0: What about other... Australian writers who pointed the way for you. I'm interested in particularly early on writers who you had personal relationships with here in Melbourne, perhaps, or maybe elsewhere, who encouraged you, who helped you to see what was possible.
1: Well, again, I've sought out the sort of plain speaking poets and I quite like the poetry of Brendan Ryan. And he's written a lot of autobiographical poems about growing up on a dairy farm. And he's really written about the sort of blood and guts of it, family and driving in old cars and how hardworking the family is. And I've always been attracted to poems about a vocation. And... For the same degree of plain speaking, Philip Hodgkins and then Jeff Page, you know, yeah right, um, and then there's individual poems I might read in best Australian poems, and if it's a clearly written poem, then it's like saying, "Do you like all the all the songs by the Rolling Stones?" No, but I love certain songs, you know i I love Ruby Tuesday. So if if any poet writes a good discernible poem then to me that's that's great that they've written that poem but it doesn't mean that I'll I'll like all their work or a whole collection of theirs.
0: Do you feel like you're writing a bit against the grain with the simplicity like do you feel like the fashion is for complexity difficulty obscurity
1: if you look at certain presses i feel they they're orientated towards the difficult and the obscure and i feel australian poetry is big enough for there to be different types of poetry but i think that's maybe why poetry remains sort of relegated to the corner of the bookshop where there's all the half a shelf of plays and all the dead spiders, you know. <laughs> um, actually, another, an, another plain speaking poet that comes to mind for me is Dorothy Porter. Yeah, yeah. 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 So um, I think poetry can do itself damage by being difficult difficult and obscure and certainly with novels, not just poetry but with, if I don't like the writing style within the first three pages of reading a novel then I pick up another novel, you know, there's just so many novels to read, so many poets to read that you know, if you think of this age where it's the age of grabbing someone's attention span, let's let's really communicate directly to them like we do in a one-on-one conversation. But if I start talking to you and saying the shoes on the rabbit were blue and cosmic through the differential of the heater, that's not, to me, a conversation. But <laughs> I'm could going to be, find it hard to respond. It, yes. <laughs> could, be a, it could be a difficult poem.
0: <laughs> but it sounds like you're pretty relaxed about all this. Like you're not sort of railing against difficulty. You just have a preference and a strategy. Yeah. Or a, you know... Well, I
1: have to be honest to myself. Mm. And, you know, my life's work is to restore the reader and the listener's attention to the sanctity of the individual. And that's via the portrait poem and writing about human beings. No matter how many books I write in my lifetime, they'll all be about what it's like to be a human being. And I feel I need to visually present the individual in a pivotal or everyday moment of their life, clearly visually within the camera of the poem. So I'm just simply trying to reveal uh, real and fictitious characters in a lot of my poems and without judgment, without cosmeticising them, without over adornment.
0: Can you expand a little on what you mean by the sanctity of the individual?
1: Okay, well, I feel in modern society, whether it's from government or media or through the prejudice of individuals there's generalizations or they try and talk about even the inhabitants of a suburb they try and slot them into a demographic or pigeonhole them or the special worrying thing for me is the use of the historical use of Statistics. So if we say, you know, in the First World War, 800,000 male French s- soldiers were killed, that row of numerals, 800,000, that's 800,000 individual human beings, each with a life, a childhood, a family, aspirations. And when we Use demographics and statistics and categorization, We lose the individual. We don't see the individual anymore.
0: I think the other thing that really strikes me, having gotten to know you a little bit, is that you're just such a hard worker. Like, when I came here today, you were reeling off the names <laughs> of, like, pro- um, residencies, uh publication opportunities, like yeah. all this stuff yeah. that you've done. Yeah. And I was sort of sitting here going, oh, my God, I didn't know about any of that. Oh, right. Like you've, you've got a great deal of energy to just commit to knowing what's out there, applying for it, just keeping going.
1: Yeah, well, it's back to perseverance. And it's also building up a track record. So, you know, when I apply f- to be in a literary festival, or for a residency, a domestic or an international one, I can show, it starts off with my first book, won the Victorian Premier's Award for poetry. And then because of that, I felt when I applied for the B.R. Whiting six month residency in Rome through the Australia Council, I was awarded that and then I could put that residency, that successfully acquitted residency, and the book that came out of that residency, The Heart at 3am, I could then add that to my CV. And so then I applied for the six month Paris residency, and I got that. And so from the Paris residency, a book again was realized days that we couldn't rehearse. And then from that, I applied through Asia Link for two China residencies, which I got. And then a book came out of those residencies. So it's like proving to funding bodies and publishers that you're, you're a thoroughbred, so to speak, that you're worthy of taking a punt on. Yeah, <laughs> to use a gambling <laughs> me- metaphor yeah
0: it's a pretty strong case for simplicity that cv
1: yeah like it's you know when i do an application i say you know i hope the selection committee will find clear evidence of my commitment to literature and my capabilities in in my cv yeah
0: Yeah. but what i mean is these the people who made those decisions Obviously didn't look at your work and think this is too simple. No, so it's a it's yeah, it should it shows that The kind of poetry that you're writing does actually get The recognition that you want for it.
1: Yeah, look, I never want I've met people who Sort of get a sour grapes attitude, you know, they say In fact, I talked to someone from the Australia Council and they said sometimes when they tell people who was funded and who wasn't funded, they get these phone calls where people are saying to the Australia Council, why does the Australia Council hate me? Which I never want to get a sour grapes attitude. I just sort of, you know, one time I applied five years in a row to the Australia Council for general funding to realise my book called Beneath Our Armour. And I thought, well, I haven't got the funding. I'll go and physically have a meeting with the Australia Council. So I went to Sydney and I said, what am I doing wrong? Or what am I doing just missing the mark? And they said, show us how keen you are for the project. Show us your enthusiasm show us the feasibility of the project and give us good support material. And so I came back to Melbourne and I applied for the sixth time and I got a $60,000 grant. So I could have given up and said, oh, the Australian Council hates me, you know, they only give funding to people with three ears and purple hair, you know. So I, it's, it's just having a, a, and if I don't get the funding, I still do the project and do the writing.
0: That was Peter Bukowski. As always, you can, you can share your thoughts with me, poetry says pod at gmail.com. I've got something I really want to get off my chest here and uh, actually ask for some advice on this question of poetry and education. A couple of things have come up recently that have really got me spinning my wheels. And yeah, I know it's a bunch of really, really smart people who listen to this show, much smarter than me, and I would love your thoughts. So... I've made the argument before that we are in a moment of what I've called peak poetry. Peak might be the wrong word, but it does feel like poetry continues to be weirdly glamorous. Maybe not poetry itself, but the aura around poetry. Poetry vibes are very, very cool at the moment. As just one example of this tom sent me a link to something that came up online for him recently information about a poetry workshop being run out of the uk on zoom by what looked like a fairly well-known poet and it looked like it was being run through a fairly well-known institution nothing significant about that in itself except that the place where this link was being shared was in an online forum which is usually reserved for the coolest of the cool berlin tech types who are usually trying to get into begain or planning their next trip to dark mofo and i thought hmm okay the berlin tech kids really want to take a poetry workshop that's interesting and then i was at yoga which look i'm not proud that i spend money to exercise in a place that is painted bright white and is full of very meticulously tended indoor plants and has uh, strategically placed salt lamps in it and where everyone is just utterly perfect looking i know that that is not probably contributing to my self-esteem more and more lately, I've started turning up in my absolute worst trackies and my Nine Inch nail shirt. I'm trying to make some kind of point to myself, but I'm still going. But so while I was there the other week, I noticed on the back of the bathroom door, there was this poster for a workshop, which was called Poetry and Prose. It was a two hour workshop, 60 bucks or $48 if you were a member of the yoga studio. And I had a number of reactions, none of which I really thought were particularly flattering. My first thought was a sort of dismissive, eye-rolling kind of, oh, poetry should not be taught in a yoga studio. Also, why is it called poetry in prose? Is this just writing as therapy? If it is, just call it that. And then I thought, wow, you're being really unkind and judgmental. I don't know who the teacher of the workshop is. I intentionally didn't look them up. I hope to God they're not listening. And if they are listening, I really hope they don't take this personally. Um, After I got past all my initial sort of judgment and um, feeling like, well, this is obviously going to be bad. This is going to be terrible. What a waste of money. I thought, okay, well, I hope that this person's a good teacher. Like I hope that they're not just profiting off that sense of mystery and glamour that poetry currently seems to have because this could be someone's first exposure to poetry and this could be the thing that sparks them to go and learn more and read more and buy poetry books and go to poetry readings and write their own stuff. On the other hand, this could be someone's only exposure to poetry. This could be the moment where they go to a workshop and they are presented with a version of poetry that is so, um, what's the word? Like, lightweight, flimsy. They could have an experience where, because it's everybody's first go, say, they're hearing a lot of really terrible work, and that's fine, but maybe they don't hear anything that really blows their mind They don't hear anything that hooks them. They don't hear anything that moves them. And so they walk out of there thinking, wow, poetry is um, kind of like, why would you waste your time? I don't think it's really worth getting too worried about that particular example. I mean, 60 bucks isn't going to break the bank, hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully. Uh, Look, if you're spending 60 bucks on your poetry workshop, then then that's good. I hope that you meet somebody else who likes the same books that you do and that you go and have a a nice glass of wine and talk about those things afterwards at least. So I was thinking for a couple of days afterwards just about that whole conundrum of like how do you first introduce adults to poetry? How do you make it inclusive and accessible without at the same time making it seem like it's so easy and anything goes and everything's acceptable that people just completely lose interest and then i came up against what i think is something like the opposite problem and this is the conundrum that i really feel like i need a bit of help with so yesterday i was talking to someone about a real difficulty for a young person um, who i know and Um, This is a young man, he's only just 14, and he isn't the world's best reader. He's getting extra help, and he is getting better, but he's not quite there yet. He will totally get there, I am certain of that. But in the meantime, he's in high school, he's in year 9, and high school, going to high school. Like, it's progressing, he's got the same assignments as everybody else. He has English assignments, of course, and as part of that, he has to look at poetry. And the assignment he has at the moment is to look at Wilfred Owen's Anthem for a Doomed Youth. This is a World War I poem, and I think if you read it as an adult, an adult who knows something about poetry, there's plenty in this poem to confuse and derail you. There's a bit of language you need to know. There's some structural elements. If you read it as an adult for the first time, you probably know most of the words and you kind of know that Wilfred Owen is famous for being a poet in World War One. Maybe, maybe you know that. Um, but if you imagine yourself as a boy in year nine, really what you want to be doing is getting back to playing online video games with your friends. How do you think... This poem is going to hit you. Let me read the first stanza. What passing bells for these who die as cattle? Only the monstrous anger of the guns. Only the stuttering rifles rapid rattle can patter out their hasty orisons. I had to read that three times (laughs) to get it right. I had to try that three times. No mockeries now for them no prayers, nor bells, nor any voice of mourning save the choirs, the shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells and bugles calling for them from sad shires. So you're in year nine, you really just want to be playing video games, and your teacher gives you this poem, and gives you an assignment with the question, how well does Wilfred Owen represent the experience of doomed youth in this poem? Can you believe that this is what they are still doing in Australian schools, in Year 9 English, in 2023? (laughs) This is not a bad school. This is actually a very, very good school. I am stunned at this. And look, my conversion moment to poetry Came in Unine studying Wilfred Owen, studying Dolce and Decorum Est. But I was a kid who loved language. I loved writing and reading and books. And this young person does not. And I very much doubt that he's any kind of exception. You know, he's, he's part of a cohort of kids who, um, Have just gone through three years of hell in terms of their schooling, I imagine that there's a very large number of readers who are a little bit behind, or a lot behind, and really do just want to be playing video games and don't want to think about Wilfred fucking Owen. Anyway, my temptation here is to conclude that, you know what? Poetry should not be taught in schools. It probably shouldn't be taught in yoga classes, (laughs) but that seems less harmful. It should not be taught in schools like this. It honestly breaks my heart to think about this young man, because he's going to hate poetry if he doesn't already. And the fact that one of the adults in his life writes it is not going to help at all. What I ended up doing was I jumped on YouTube and I looked for quick, easy analyses of this poem to send to him. There basically weren't any or none that I could in good conscience sort of recommend to a 14-year-old. People would sort of start out going, okay, here we go. We're going to talk about Wilfred Owen. It's going to be great, guys. And then they would start talking about assonance and... The fucking war and i'm just like oh god okay take it back a bit like you know (laughs) this is if this is somebody's first interaction you got to keep it simple anyway they're not necessarily making it for year nine students but um yeah there was there were no um resources i could find i thought about okay they did do that really good episode on in our time about wilfred owen but uh yeah i can't send that (laughs) Melvin Bragg is not going to help here. Um, But that yeah, the YouTube thing was the best I could think of. Honestly, who is trying to teach this poem to 14-year-olds? I am so angry that he is being put in this position. And, you know, it's okay if he ends up hating poetry. (laughs) He and all his classmates. But, fuck, what a shitty... What a shitty way to spend a couple of weeks, hey? Like thinking about Wilfred Owen and his cattle and his orisons. That sucks. So my question is, how would you change this situation? How would you teach poetry? When would you teach it? What environment would you teach it in? And what would you start with? It really doesn't matter what you say, because I think anything's better than making a 14-year-old read lines like, Only the stuttering rifle's rapid rattle can patter out their hasty horizons. Fuck. Okay, that's a lot of swearing. I apologise to Peter, who may or may not still be listening. Um, And to his wonderful wife Helen and Buzz the super poodle. (laughs) who took such good care of me when I came over. Yeah, any thoughts, any ideas, any leads, any good YouTube channels that might help, um, you can email me, PoetrySaysPod at gmail.com. I've been Alice Allen. I've been very angry. I'm going to sign off now.
1: What passing bells for these who die of cattle? Only the monstrous anger of the guns, only the stuttering rifles of rapid rattle, can patter out their history. Here's a story about the rules of death or glory, to be learned by heart by all children of men.
0: It's the hour of the morning, on the day after the dawning, when the sun, they said, would never set finally setting.